It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, just before we start the show, a uh, quick note, uh, I was actually featured on the Right to Reason podcast with our friend Robert Stanley, and we actually did a debate, uh, me versus Adele Glover, we had a great a great time doing this, about the uh, historicity of Jesus, a debate on mythicism, so if you want to find out more about uh, Kevin's wacky adventures, you go check that out at the Right to Reason. Hey there, heathens, I'm John, the Godless Engineer. Hi, I'm Aaron Rod. Hi, this is Andrew Jasko. This is Don Queen from the Godless Heathens Podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Hector Garcia. Hi, this is Owen from Rex and Owen and the Skeptical Texans. Hey, I'm Stephen Woodford of Rationality Rules. Hi, I'm Thomas Westbrook of Holy Kool-Aid. Hi, this is Matt Delahunty. Hi, this is Britt and Nikki from Unapologetics. Hi, I'm Donald Trump, and I took a rip. Wait, which one second? I gotta put my hands up here. Yeah, just go ahead, Robert. Just go. Hi, I'm Robert Stanley of the Right to Reason podcast, and I, I took, a took a left, left at, at the, the valley. valley. And we, oh, should I say it too? No, sorry. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud of being an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith in unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an Coming at you from the end of the summer, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and people who wear glasses must be excited about next year. They get to see 2020. <laughs> the eye roll. Joining me as usual is a team who will tell you that an opinion without 3.1416 is just an onion. <laughs> Think about that one. Yep. The devil whispered to her, I'm coming for you, and she whispered back, bring pizza. Nancy. Yeah, that's right. I, absolutely. Pizza goes good with everything, and with the devil, hoo-ha. <laughs> she took the wrong medication, but on the positive side, she's protective from heartworms and fleas. Christina. <laughs> hey, gotta protect from everything. And she saw a dwarf coming down a prison wall, and she thought it was a little condescending. Kirsten. <laughs> oh, my God. Ladies, welcome back. <laughs> Hope you had a great week. Where do you find those? Oh, uh, don't ask. I mean, how do you... <laughs> what kind of search... I mean, as someone who searches for information to do my segments, <laughs> I'd like to... Where do you... I never see any of these. You don't want a one-trip way to my mind. Not to rat them out, but I've seen almost every single one of those on Facebook in the last Have couple of weeks. A lot of them are on Facebook. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I've got to expand my search capabilities, that's for sure. So today we'll be talking to Dale Unneth, and we'll be talking about... Uh, Evidence-based eating, so that should be very interesting, but that's going to be in the second half of the show. But first, let's do a usual chit-chat. Now, have you guys heard that the Israeli government has been, of course, they've been controversial in the treatment of Palestinians, but... Just slightly. Very slightly. (laughs) Uh, Did you guys hear that Hydro-Quebec 
here right here in Canada, declined to renew an agreement with them, uh, over with the uh, Israel Electric Corporation over the concerns about Palestine. Good. Mm. Yeah. No. So the uh, like I said, the IEC is accused of helping the Israeli government in violating the human rights of the Palestinians, and basically the uh, Hydro Quebec decided to put their money where their mouth is and say, no, you know, we're not doing business with you guys anymore. That's fantastic. So I think yeah, I think that's the way to go, and hopefully maybe we'll see other companies put more uh, financial pressure like yeah, that on the because Israeli they're government. literally murdering them. Yeah, like ah, that is not okay. No, absolutely not. Uh, did you guys also hear that apparently uh, students uh, Jenny Yao and Miranda Wang, the two students that developed a bacterium capable of eating plastic. Seriously? Yeah. I did hear about that. Yeah, I only saw the headline, so... Yeah, they've obtained a patent, and they've actually uh, managed to secure $400,000 in financing. Uh, this, apparently, this, uh, this bacterium would dissolve plastic into CO2 and water. Hmm. So, first they dissolve the plastic, and then when it's mailable, they put it in a biodigester uh, and uh, station, and it's all done within 24 hours. That's amazing. Wow. That is really, really promising. Is it drinkable water? I'm assuming so. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Have you noticed lately, and I'm sort of making this up, but it, there's a, there's a range here that that's important. Have you noticed that, let's say, seven out of ten new inventions are are being uh, made are being made in, or, or research by teenagers mm-hmm. yeah. uh-huh. under because 21. they're the ones it that are like eight out of ten. But the, lately, anytime you look at something that's you know, it's a lot. Come on, it, it, it's someone under 20 years old. Mm-hmm. I honestly think it's because they're the generation that is like, we're effed. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, we they, have to solve these problems or I'm not going to see 30. Exactly, exactly. They take they take things like climate change very seriously because they're realizing the older generations are not. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, we need to tackle this and they are not waiting for the, adult, the adults, quote unquote, the to do it. The older generations I, I, don't even think it's real most exactly. of the time. Yeah, I think part of it may be that when a, a 15 or 16 year old gets an idea and they get obsessed by it, they can do it. They don't have to wait for a CEO Mm-hmm. Or for a human resources person to say, no, this isn't in your department, that's in that department. They go ahead and do it. And they're allowed to fail and do it over and over without somebody saying, no, you've put enough time in this. I, I really think it's the freedom to um, to invent and to be creative. Yeah, yeah. as Neil deGrasse Tyson said, we're all born natural scientists until yeah. it's beaten out of us yeah. uh, with, you know, with time and, you know, Life essentially, you know, you, you have to worry about making ends meet instead. But when you're at that age, you know, they they actually tackle on it. They've got probably more imagination than the rest of us do, so they yeah. just tackle the problem and hurry for them. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, you guys hear that Canadians through a crowdfunding raised three million dollars to buy a stretch of coastal BC right here. This is 2,000 acres of uh, Princess Louisa Inlet on the Sunshine Coast to protect it from loggers and developers. I didn't Yay. hear about this. Mm, I didn't hear about yeah, that. Yeah, so they, they, they decided to buy the land because the land of some loggers and developers want to use it, obviously, and uh, to, to build houses and take off the trees and all that stuff. And the average donation was apparently between 10 and $20. And nice. they managed to raise $3 million to protect that little... Good for them. Yeah, excellent. And yeah. hopefully this is a kind of uh, the thing that catches on and keeps going. Um... And last but not least, Iceland. And that's a progressive nation. I love this story. And, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, who comes to visit Iceland? Well, enter Mike, Mike Pence. You I know, hate him. The vice president. He's a known homophobe and anti-LGBT advocate. Uh, so 
he um he traveled uh, uh, and on his visit to Iceland and uh, uh, in uh, well, I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Reykjavik. Reykjavik. Oh, thank you. Reykjavik. Well, he was uh, he had a meeting with the president of Johansson, Johansson, and was greeted with rows of pride flags. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of pride flags. Ah, oh, the place. beauty mm-hmm. of it. And I know. The president and his first lady also were wearing pride bracelets. Good. <laughs> Oh, fuck. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was just beautiful to watch it, that. It was. Mm-hmm. It was. I would have, would have loved to have been the proverbial fly yeah. on the wall for that one. I would have loved it's, to see it. It's his really face. interesting because it started, I'm pretty sure it started with one business that was right next to the house. Mm-hmm. And then it just caught on and then everybody put the flag up. Do you, th- I, I, I don't know. I don't know much about the intelligence of Mike Pence. And I know a lot of atheists think there that, isn't you know, much to know about. Okay, fair enough. A lot of atheists have a tendency to think that if if uh, uh, Trump was impeached, it'd be even worse for us atheists because Pence is a bit much of a you know Christian crusader. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm looking at the pictures. I don't even know if this guy realized it. You know, from his vacant expression, he doesn't even look like he realized what was happening. I don't know. <laughs> I think he's. I think he's a person that if you agree with his core values and he knows it you can manipulate him to do almost anything you know in saying we're going to accomplish your um you know anti lbgtq agenda and all you have to do is this he's in mm-hmm. you know he just i don't think he thinks for himself no i at I, all. I think he's uh, i i always get the impression he's a yes man you know he's a toady yeah exactly Anyway, well, thank you so much for that. Well, in the meantime, we got some. Yay! Yay! I hope they like us. <laughs> so this is from a listener called Kathy. Um, Hi, Kathy. <laughs> she's, she says, um, uh, I've reached out to you in the last week, uh, and you said if I needed help. So I just wanted to share a thought. I listened to some atheist experience today, and a woman, theist, was having a discussion with Matt and she was explaining his reasons for no heaven. She started to cry because she could see how thoroughly he set out his explanation and how it sounded more reasonable to her than what she's been taught all her life. He was so careful and caring, and she said, um, she said what, what, what that her sister had died when she, the theist, was 13, and she looked forward to seeing her again in heaven. It was killing her that it might not be true as, as, as she hoped. Uh, Kevin, I cried for her. I'm still bloody crying because it's not fair that she's so hurt because of a fairy story. Anyway, thanks for listening. I might have uh, messed up sending this. My apologies, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I, I wanted to quickly address this, and I think we should. Um, the, thing, the thing about atheism is um, it's not emotionally comfortable. And I'll be the first one to admit that I like the idea of an afterlife. I do. I do. And, you know, a part of me would actually almost be relieved to realize once I check out that I wake up somewhere else. Uh, but the thing is, being a, an atheist also means that you've chosen intellectual honesty over emotional comfort. Now, there could be an afterlife, but the thing is, is we have nothing that actually points to it. So... To be, I don't want to be a hard atheist because some people are, and I think they're making a mistake when they say, no, no, there is no such thing. Because we actually, we don't really know. But for what we do know, there is nothing that points to this. And as, 
uncomfortable as it is, and I think it's one of the, the kind of flaws of the fact of being an atheist, it's not appealing for a lot of people because we are emotional creatures. And we have a tendency to, you know, we want, we want to be comforted. And, and as atheists, you know, I think it takes a lot of courage for us to admit that, you know, like I said, we're intellectually honest and say, we have no reason to actually think that. Does that make any sense to you guys? Oh, oh yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, that's the rational way to think about it. But the emotional hole that that mm. leaves, a person can be inconsolable yeah. because of it. Yeah. So I guess the question is, what do you do? Do you tell that person, this is what science and evidence tells us. But if it gives you comfort to believe that at this point in your life and it helps you, uh, even though you know it may not be true, if it gives you emotional comfort or you can leave this world in peace and not in a state of turmoil mm -hmm. because you think you're never going to ever see the people that you loved mm -hmm. in this world that passed away, is there harm in saying, if, if that's what gives you, knowing that, mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. that it's, it's not... It's it may not be true, but if it gives you comfort knowing that, is that so bad? I actually think it it in some ways is, mm -hmm. because how I look at it, because when I was still a Christian, the afterlife was something that gave me both a lot of like excitement, but also terror, <clears throat> because I grew up in a family where we believed in the very real literal uh, place of hell, and. I was terrified that everyone I loved would go to hell, mm -hmm. especially when my twin sister wasn't a Christian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had to live with, like, I had to go through my day being like, this person I love is going to be tortured for eternity. <laughs> like, yeah. how is that okay? Um, and for people who lose someone close to them and that they love, and that they then are like, I'll see them again in heaven, it almost puts a stop on grieving mm -hmm. and it it keeps you from really processing those emotions of this person is gone because it it almost tricks your mind into like oh they're on vacation oh they're it's like it's like makes you be in the same spot as this person is living in australia now and i won't see them yeah. for a long time where when you realize, because I personally have zero belief in a, even a soul. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm very much like who we are is directly in our body. And that there's nothing that continues on that is us. Mm -hmm. So for me, death is comforting. Mm -hmm. Because like there isn't anything <laughs> like that... Uh, once you die, like you don't have to worry because their experience, their existence is over, mm -hmm. and they aren't going to suffer. They aren't going to have like there. There's nothing, and like for people who come from a place where they expect this wonderful existence afterwards, it can be a really hard transition to realize that that won't be there. Personally, I think that deep down inside, we all know there is nothing after. Um, you know, if you're a Christian and you truly, truly believe that, you know, you just, this is the temporary living and after that you get to go to heaven, why would you cry at somebody's funeral? You'd be happy for them. 
You know, he said, you know, you're gone now, my friend. I will see you when I'm joining you. But people cry all the time because I think deep down inside, we know. We actually know that this person is gone and gone. Mm, I, don't, I, think, I, I don't, don't think we want to I don't it. actually agree with that. Uh, I think, I, I'm, I'm just saying on an instinctual level. Yeah. On an instinctual level, I think we, we, this is why we grieve. Because we understand mm-hmm. that, no, this person is not coming back. Yeah. Well, th- but there are people who do celebrate the, the death. Oh, yeah, but they're, they're few be and far between. And they I don't mean, the go average through person. The, mm-hmm. the grief, which is something that Christina was saying a few minutes yeah. ago, that you don't, you don't finish the and process. And a but, lot of times in those, at those funerals where they're crying, it's not the same level of grief. Because it, it, when people are at the airport wishing their loved one goodbye, mm-hmm. they're sometimes bawling their eyes out because they won't see that person for mm-hmm. 10, 20 years. Yeah. But they they are like oh I'll see you again. Yeah. So when you're at a funeral in a religious sense, a lot of people are are grieving the time that it'll take to see them again. I I just this is like I said it's my personal opinion it's only worth that much. Mm-hmm. But like I said I just get the impression that deep down we all know and this is why the priest has to go up front and say no 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 don't worry about Bob he's not dead he's actually playing ball with Jesus right now he's happy. You know, because I think you down inside, you know, the, the pre- we, we kind of like to lie to ourselves to try to make ourselves feel better about something like that. And to answer your question, Nancy, do you, if, if a person has a belief that, you know, they have an afterlife, is that, is that such a bad thing? Um, if it was just a belief of an afterlife in itself, no. But if you take the version of, let's say, Christianity, for example, or Islam, it, it's not just a belief in itself. It yeah. comes with a caveat of everything else that's around it, and that mm-hmm. is what's dangerous. If, if a person, say, for example, you just go back to the universe and they have some kind of woo thing, sure, that, yeah. that, that's not, that's not going to harm. By all means, go ahead and believe that because it's not going to actually influence much of your actions on the planet. But when you believe that, no, no, Jesus is here and he's going to collect me. But at the same time, you start thinking, oh, well, yeah, but Jesus also said this. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the homosexuality is an abomination and blah, blah, blah. It, there's, a, there's, just more, there's more to the yeah. religion than just the afterlife. Well, and that's I find sometimes where you get people doing horrible things is that they think to get that ultimate reward and that afterlife that's happy, mm-hmm. they need to do these horrible things. Mm-hmm. They need to do what their quote-unquote God said. So that they can have that justification internally being like, to get this happy end, I need to do this thing because that's what's asked of me. Yeah. Where without religion, you don't really get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but con- confining the discussion to what Kathy's talking mm-hmm. about in terms of just the reunion with, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not if you had, a, if it was possible to have a discussion with that person she was listening to and you said, to her, um, if you knew without a doubt that there was nothing after mm-hmm. life, that this is all we have, mm-hmm. but you love your sister, would there be anything else that would give you comfort other than knowing there was an afterlife where you would meet up? If you knew absolutely that that was not mm-hmm. possible, what else might give you comfort? And I wonder what answers people people would give if they'd say, well, there isn't anything else. Or they'd start to think, well, I, I've had her, you know, I, I've been able to have her, you know, um, uh, alive and in, in, in my heart mm-hmm. all of these years. And the fact that, that we were, you know, together and that she had a good life and that we enjoyed all these experiences, maybe... You know, that's enough of a comfort. Mm -hmm. And then to take what comes, whatever comes after that. I mean, maybe that's a a question. Mm -hmm. I mean, this certainly is something, 
it's an interesting topic. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a huge topic. topic. I, mean, I, I also think... Because I don't think there's a definitive... I don't think there's a definitive mm-hmm. answer for, for everybody. There's not a, you know, one heaven fits yeah. all kind of a mm-hmm. And umbrella. I definitely think that how Kathy is feeling about this woman... Because yeah. she was saying how, like, she's crying for her. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of empathy. And I think that is totally normal. Yeah. Because yeah. this woman is, when she was 13, she lost someone she loved. And depending on what kind of family she was in, <coughs> she might not have got any grief support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It might have been, oh, just be happy for them. So all of those feelings might have been bottled up yeah. and separated. And then she's coming to a now a realization that, she has to face those feelings. So, be- so then that that could definitely be one of the reasons she's crying, yeah. being like, "I have to grieve now." So, so Kathy, uh, thank you so much for your letter. But oh, then it, yeah. it, it, just remember two quotes. Uh, one from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson basically said, or was it was it Richard Dawkins? That basically said, "You know, we are the universe made conscious and aware of itself, and for that we are the lucky ones." You know, the, the, what makes life so precious is the finite amount of it, the finality mm. of it, and that's why it makes it precious. And that's why Christians have a tendency to treat this life like it's just a uh, somewhere they can wipe their feet for the next one, not realizing this might be the only one. And also, Ricky Gervais basically said, "You know." Uh, People say that atheists have nothing to live for. No, we have nothing to die for. Exactly. You know, we have everything to live for because mm-hmm. we think this is the only one. And from what we can tell, it really is the only life you have. So make it as beautiful as possible for the short amount of time we are here. All right. Anyway, thank I you so much, answer, Kathy. I hope that answered your I question. Hope that, I sure hope it did. Yeah. All right. Kathy, let Kathy let us know if you want the discussion to go on again. Let us know Absolutely. if there's another aspect of it. And thank you so much for uh, for sharing that question with us and allowing us to to um, hopefully give you a good answer. All right, my dear Nancy, you got a top ten for us? I do. You were, you have no doubt that I would have. Oh, of course not. I have no doubt. And, no doubt about you whatsoever. Okay, and this one's this one you got to help me out with, Kevin, because today's top ten you inspired. Oh. And so, yeah, I'm putting, <laughs> I'm I'm putting the putting the burden on you, because this uh, this one to me is like another talking to Dr. Ben. Okay. <laughs> okay. And what it is is ten old school cars that you need in your garage because they're oh, wow. muscle cars. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. You remember asking me about the muscle cars? I did. Okay. All okay. right. Great. So we're going to talk about muscle cars okay. today, and for those of us that don't know or need a little review let's answer the question what is a muscle car and then we'll go on to the top 10 a muscle car is considered to be a more compact yet heavy two-door car which is powered by a large displacement engine and is focused on performance good so far okay generally muscle cars feature a two plus two design whatever that is with a small rear seat in a coupe format but the modern day dodge charger would be the sedan exception in the muscle car world you agree with that we could yeah i think so yeah good? this is a good okay muscle car so it's started, not a toyota corolla okay <laughs> Mu- muscle car started when do you think they started uh in the 60s 1949 they go oh, back wow. oh i was gonna say 50s yeah 
And the, the, uh, the muscle car that we can trace back to 1949 is the Oldsmobile Rocket 88. Okay. Yeah, and, and there's a little debate about that, but uh, there are a lot of contenders claim, you know, yes or no, but generally, you know, we, we can take that one as the, as the muscle car. Why did they stop? As time went on and the world experienced a few oil crises and higher gas prices, as well as stricter exhaust emissions uh, and higher insurance premiums, uh, the muscle cars slowly faded away. And it wasn't until the mid to late 2000s that muscle cars came back mm -hmm. in full force. Okie dokie. So here we go with the muscle cars number 10. 1969 Chevrolet Camaro ZL1. Oh, Anybody yes, know about yes, that one? Yes. Nope. <laughs> do, we, do you know about that? I came very close to having one myself. Oh, oh really? Why? Really? Yeah, I, I, it was. I didn't. I didn't quite have it because I was young and didn't quite have the the money and anyway circumstances. But mine was a special edition on top of that. It had the round Corvette lights in the back instead of the strips oh. that they usually have. It's a nice, nice car. Yeah, they said that it's the most powerful engine that was offered by Chevrolet to Chevrolet by the by the public, and it was uh, it was also a rare car, believe it or not. So um, they uh, they had I don't know how many that they that they put out, but there there, there wasn't a whole lot of them. So no. they were they were rare at that time, and I don't know how many there are available now or have been restored in oh, yeah. people's garages. But that's supposed to be, and it didn't have a specific emblem of just the usual Camaro badge. So that's number 10. Number 9, the 1970 Buick GSX. Hmm. What do you think about that one? Well, I, I, I've, I'd probably have to take a good look at it because myself, I never thought of Buick as a muscle car that's, thing. That's and, what I thought. Especially in those years. I'm like, a Buick? I know yeah. it was a luxurious car and yet and a Buick. So yeah. it, I mean, my friend had one, and the seats were like fucking clouds. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it was like Daddy's car, right? The Buick, the big Buick. You know, it was a comfortable yeah. the ride. The boat car. The boat car. Uh, little known fact: Buick, the brand Buick, is uh, highly, highly praised in China. Really? Mm. To this day, I mean, to, like here, people say, "Oh, wow, have you seen this Ferrari?" Over there is, "Wow, have you seen that Buick?" Wow. Yeah. This, this Buick, because, you know, because it was daddy's car and it was such a solid, you know, middle class kind, there were only 687 wow. of these GSX, another rare Oh, wow. Car. Yeah. So, so, so it's, not, it's not just muscle cars, it's rare muscle cars. You're it's a rare muscle there. car. I have no idea how much you'd have to pay for any of these cars at a this lot. point. I guess it depends on the condition and how much needs mm -hmm. and whether parts are available and all that good stuff. Number eight. The 1970 Dodge Challenger. Oh, of course. Was that a yeah. kind of a standard? <laughs> well, they, they've remade the Challenger today, right? Which was pretty yeah. much the, uh, just just the, the nostalgia factor right there. I haven't uh, seen them around in a while, actually. Well, the, the Challengers are all yeah. over the place. Yeah. I've seen kidding? the Chargers, but not the Challengers. Oh, you just, I think there's even more Challengers other than the Chargers right now. Really? It's oh, yeah, it's on beautiful the, car. on the Plymouth Barracuda platform, so it was a little That's bit That's my car, the Barracuda. Bigger. Yeah, it wasn't as rare as the as a lot of the other cars, but you know, back then the the, the Dodgers were. Oh yeah, they were everything in Mopar back then was yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so the number seven is a 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner Hemi. Yes. Oh, you're nodding on that one. So yeah. what do you know about that one? Well, as soon as you see Hemi, the, the Hemi um, refers to a, a hemisphere, which is the uh, the shape of the uh, the uh, the the chamber where the spark happens. Actually, the combustion chamber inside. So it's a hemisphere, and these engines are 426 Hemi. 
mean, the 427 Hemi were, they're legendary engines, actually. They're, yeah, it was a the, 425 yeah, horsepower, very, very powerful cubic engine. I, I had an acquaintance in Quebec that actually had a 426 Hemi in parts that was sitting in oil. And this is like 20 years ago. He was offered $50,000 for it. Oh and he said gosh. no. And he said no. What? Oh, yeah. Why the hell did he say no? Because because that engine is right now is probably worth double, if triple. Wow. They were the, weren't they the, the, the super drag? car they, for they drag were, racing they were they were powerful this is the kind of car that you know you sat in and you put a dollar in the dashboard and as soon as you floor that you almost have to, to struggle to reach to grab that dollar on the dashboard Ooh. yeah it just pushed you right back it was just like pure power yeah they thought they'd sell 20,000 of when they came out and they ended up doubling it there were about mm -hmm. 40,000 you know at, at the time um, number six Mercury Cougar Eliminator, mm, like the name. Okay, it's quite you know, the name. That is quite the name. They, uh, Mercury tried to raise their profile with muscle cars. So in uh, 1969, they did the the Cougar, and it was um, 355 horsepower, 440 pounds of torque, and um, they had. Header, they could put headers in them and dual quad carburetors and mm. all that. So they pretty they tricked them out pretty well, I guess, didn't they? Were they were they as popular? Was the was the Mercury as popular as the? I the Mer Mercury was at the time for people that are young might not know was the uh, more uh, luxurious version of Ford. Mm -hmm. They stopped making the Mercury. You know, a, a bit like Pontiac was a more luxurious version of uh, Chevrolet. Right. Yeah. It was made by the same thing. You, you, you had the the Ford Mustang and you had the uh, the Mercury. Oh God! What was it called? The Mercury Capri. It was a, okay. it was a Mustang, but it was just a bit more toys to it, you know, okay. and more bells and whistles. Yeah, it came in in four really cool colors: white. That's not so cool. Yellow, white, bright blue, and I like this competition orange. Mm. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. So, uh, pretty pretty cool car all the way around. Number five, a 1970 Oldsmobile. 442. Yes. Oh, now you're breaking yes. up for that one. Yes. The 442, uh, for you movie buffs, ever seen the, the movie Demolition Man? Yes. Yeah. That car, that old car he gets in there, the black and red yeah. car, that's the 442. Oh, nice. That's a beautiful, beautiful car. That, yeah. That'd be like one of my favorites by far, too. Well, people thought that that was the king of, of the performance muscle cars, and it, it had a standard for a 445 CID V8 engine, and um, they... General Motors said it was a 365 horsepower, but it probably was up to about 400 horsepower, accompanied by a raucous, and I'm reading this off the page, a raucous 500 pound feet torque. Mm. So that was a... 500 was pound a, feet torque is the kind yeah, of, the kind of torque was, Porsches have today. Yeah. They, uh, so... <laughs> yeah. They, that's how much grip that thing had. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, that was quite, well, that was back quite then. the car. Uh, James Garner... Um, the actor took mm -hmm. a 1970 Olds to the NORRA Mexico 1000 race, okay. which later became the Baja 1000, and won second place with that car. Wow. Nice. Yeah, he was he was a, a pretty good uh, race car. He enjoyed race car. A lot of actors did. Um, Paul Newman mm -hmm. enjoyed it as well, but I guess this was a favorite of James Garner. Number four, 1970 Ford. Torino Cobra. Oh, okay. Ford got into the game here. Yeah, yeah. Everything else. It had different models, but the one that everybody considers their favorites was the Cobra. It's a performance model. Um, it was a 
a Motor Trend Car of the Year in 1970. So it, it got a number of accolades and people people really liked it. Uh, they had 15-inch Magnum wheels and black sports slats and a mm. uh, really cool, cool car. It was 370 horsepower with a 420 V8 engine. It was a little heavier, but uh, it was really beautiful, beautiful car. A lot of people loved it. Number three... 1968 Shelby Mustang GT500 KR. Yes. There, we got a big designation on that one. So, what do we all know about that? Oh, I need, well, (laughs) anything that's Shelby is essentially pretty much uh, uh, legendary. Um, If if you see a car and it's got those two white stripes on the middle, that's a Shelby look. Right. Is he still? Is Carol Shelby still? No, alive? he's not. Yeah. Uh, he's not. Uh, I happen to know a gentleman right here, not far, right here in Rosedale, who's uh-huh. got two Ford Mustangs. Uh, ni- I believe a 1967 Boss, I think, 302, and both of them are just like in the garage, just sitting in the heat, and they're just sitting there. And both of them are actually signed by Shelby himself. Oh wow! He used wow. to have three. He sold one. It's like, oh my god, are you kidding me? This is worth a fortune right there. Oh man. Well, the KR on that, you know, 500 KR stood for King of the Road. Mm. Yeah, so I, I don't know whether everybody knows that or that's a little trivia, but there's a little trivia that any car buff can can pull out, thanks mm-hmm. to uh, Left at the Valley. <laughs> so, it, and it was the King of the Road. They had a 428 engine known as the Cobra Jet, and that gave the horsepower out, uh, gave the car a horsepower outlet of 335 and a total torque of 448. So it was a really neat car, and it was Shelby, so oh, yes. it had a lot going for it. So we're heading down to the final two. Um, any guesses uh, as to what the final two might be? You don't don't have to go for the order, but any any guesses? Uh, I'll go for a 19, uh, 1970 uh, Charger uh, with, with a soft top. Wish it was. No. <laughs> Gave you a second there to think about it, but number two is a 1964 Plymouth. Now, this is only one list, okay. so it could have made another list, you know, pretty easy. But on this list, the number two is a 1964 Plymouth Belvedere. You remember the Belvedere's? Really? Yeah. Belvedere. Yeah, and it looked, it didn't look like a muscle car, and yet it was a really powerful car, and it was, uh, although it was very light, it had a 426 Hemi engine, and uh, it was a real, according to a lot of people, it was a real beast on the drag strip, and they did very well by adding a Hemi engine. And uh, You're right, they, actually, don't, they don't look like muscle cars at all. They, no. They kind of look like a Buick. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, the Belvedere won first, second, and third at NASCAR's 1964 Daytona race, believe it or not. So that's why wow. it made the number two. Yeah, it was a... You know, uh, I guess you didn't, when you looked at it, you didn't realize the power under the hood. Yeah, exactly. Looks can be deceiving. Okay, here we go. Number one is, ta-da, the 1968 Dodge Dart 426 Hemi. that ring any bells? Really? The Dart? According to this list, one of the best muscle cars ever made. You said 1968, right? In 1968, in order to satisfy the sanction of the NHRA sanction rules, Dodge produced 50 Dart um, 426 Hemi cars, which were sent to get the uh, 426 
engines installed. So this car featured a fiberglass hood, lightweight steel, thinner glass, and front fenders in an effort to reduce the weight. And the 1968 Dodge Dart was meant to be a race car, which wouldn't, which wouldn't be driven on the streets, which is why the weight reduction and the improvements made more sense uh, you know, for a track environment than city driving. So this was really, you know, devised for, you know, for racing rather than, you know, your dad hmm. taking it out on Sunday to bring back the ice cream. For well, I, I know the Dart has a, a, a devoted following, but I never thought of it as a particularly attractive car. Well, but, this, you know. this one, the, the Dodge Dart 420, wasn't even, it, it, a lot of times it wasn't legal on the streets, no, yeah. just depending. I mean, as but, you're naming these things, I'm looking, I'm Googling the, the image yeah, of the car. Yeah. <laughs> so it needed only 10 seconds to hit the quarter mile runs with absolutely no modifications, just oh. straight out of the factory. So if whether you believe it's number one or not, uh, most people agree that it was one of the fastest factory-made cars from the golden age of old school muscle cars, mm-hmm. and if you wanted pure power, that's what you get. And there's a yeah, there we go. You, yeah, you got it right there. there. It, is. it doesn't look like much like that when you just look at it, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, it was a fun top ten for me because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we all drive cars, but we're not always into no, you know true. the specifics. But it, it does bring back a lot of memories of that time, and it's it. Uh, thanks for inspiring. It was fun for me to look yeah. at. Yeah. If if you guys wanted to know more about uh, cars and these muscle cars and what they do today because there really is a, a, a bit of a market for that uh, there's a couple of shows you might well, of course you can always look at the Barrett Jackson auctions right they usually have them there my and, grandpa used to watch those all the time yeah, some absolutely. of those cars are just like Pristinely the, there's also there's also another Canadian show. It's a Canadian show. It's co- it comes out of the uh, Toronto area, and it's usually on the business network. It's called Legendary Motor Car. Oh, and there's a there's a, essentially it's a father and son dealership they have back there, and that's what they do. They take these old cars and they restore them, they buy them, and then they sell them out the door. And you see them negotiating with the people and restore them, and you know take good care. And really, really some fine, fine looking cars. Mm-hmm. And the reason I said the uh, 1970 uh, Charger. Uh, it's because um, it's also the 1969 Charger. Was it? remember the Dukes of Hazard? Mm-hmm. Mm. That car, right? That car is is, mm-hmm. is a legend. And the reason why it's so rare today, if you find a very good one, uh, it's got all the bells and whistles and low mileage. They can easily go up to two million dollars. Wow! Right, and for a 1970 car, right? A 1969, 1970. And and the reason they're so rare today is because of that show. <laughs> because when they did the Dukes of Hazard, oh, yeah. they were doing these jumps for real. That's right. But when the car lands, it doesn't keep going. It just crashes. So they right? went yeah. through a few of they them. They went through lots of them, right? They had to repaint them and all that. And they went through lots and lots of these these uh, yeah. these cars. Well, that's, you know, speaking of which, that's what's fun watching, um, you know, channels like the, uh, the Me channel. When you see all of these old shows that were made in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, part of the real fun of watching those shows, I have, there are two fun things, the fashions and the cars, mm. you know, and, and it really is just, you know, you, you're listening to the script and you're listening to the plot, but just watching, you know, yes, the, the, yes. The, the way people dressed and the cars that they, they drove at that time. The thing that came to mind was like Grease. Yeah. <laughs> with the John yeah. Walter, right? And the hairdos. And the hairdo you know. and, the, and the fashion and the cars, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, my dear Kirsten, you got another brilliant moment for us? I sure do. Brought to you by religion. Okay, so we all know about Hurricane Dorian. Oh, yes, we do. And who do we know that loves a good hurricane? 
The swishy lady. The swishy lady. It's been a while. All right, so this is what she has to say about what amazing things they did with this, the hurricane. This is Kat Kerr, by the way, for our audience that may not have followed the, the show on this. Yes. Kat Kerr. The prophetess, Kat Kerr, with her swishy stick. Self-proclaimed oh, Yeah, of course. Yes. They're all self-proclaimed prophetess. prophetess. Here's what she says. Thank you, Jesus. We crushed the storm together. What? Shortly before 8 p.m. Eastern, live from the coast of Florida, we took the authority Christ gave us and declared over the storm. Winds have dissipated from 185 miles per hour to 130, and soon the storm will officially be downgraded to a Category 3, and we will continue to speak against it. What? <laughs> Thank you all who declared with us. As said when we last hit it, we don't fight against the storm, but rule over it as manifested sons and daughters of God. We have been praying for all those who were in the path of the storm in Puerto Rico and the Bahamas, and will continue to do so. Weathermen cannot explain what has happened the, the because the eye is unstable. It is wobbling and moving backward. Also, about? it has parked. <laughs> it is a sitting target to be crushed. Because we are joint heirs with Christ and have given our lives to him. As the word says, we will rule with him oh, in Jesus Christ. As, oh. as we are recording this, Hurricane Dorian is actually licking the coast of Nova Scotia. Yeah. As, and it's going to kind of hit tonight as we're recording this. So, so I don't know when she realized that that storm is still there. It didn't dissipate at all. It's also really bad for a storm to slow down too much. Because then it sits on one spot and they get too much rain and that's when you get massive flooding. So is it her fault that it stalled over the Bahamas? <laughs> we can. I mean, was there just too much swishy authority going swishy on? Swishy authority. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, actually right now they're actually evacuating part of uh, Halifax. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, they're, they're, they're talk, stay away from the water, obviously, and there's going to be like sustained wind of 150 kilometers an hour. That's what they're saying. Wow. Yeah, it's so been, it's still strong. It's yeah. still very powerful. It's been a really strange... Oh, Storm, but storm, you know yeah. it's it's known to affect Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> that's something else entirely. <laughs> yeah, that's all you need is a sharpie. To make a sharpie. Sure it doesn't affect that. Sharpie NATO instead of Shark NATO. Yeah. Sharpie didn't, <laughs> didn't the weather? Didn't the didn't um, the uh, the National Weather Service backtrack a little bit to back Trump up? Weren't they, you kind of? Did they? No. they said no. something I think, about I the think... original. Didn't they say something about well? Three or four, five, six days before it. No, that was like what Trump said. No, well, I know well, that, but yeah, I think but what the do you weather. Do, what do you do long term prediction? Weather... What do you do long term prediction? They kind of make it wide because you don't exactly know. As the days are getting closer, then the prediction becomes more and more accurate. Obviously, well, yeah. we'll have to look that because somewhere I, I, I saw that the weather system, I mean, the the the, uh, the weather service said something to kind of soften yeah. what Trump had said, and I thought. Forget it. You know, you don't. You don't do that. Well, you gotta remember also yeah. the, the head of the, uh, the the weather service has actually yeah. been appointed by Trump as well as one of his ardent supporters, and I can't forget, remember the guy's name. But anyway, we're way off the subject here. So, swishy lady. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I can't even finish the last little bit here. It's just so ridiculous. And Jesus, and it's like seriously. With like at this point, what I have seen is at least forty-three people have died from this, with hundreds, if not thousands, still missing. And the hurricane has left behind billions of dollars of damage. It's a good thing she's there because otherwise it'd be tens of billions of dollars of damage. <laughs> but like, absolutely, you guys crushed that storm. Yeah, yeah, sure. totally yeah, crushed that crushed storm. It. And 
It's also oh. was, was it the presidential candidate that came out? What's her name? Williamson, Marion Williamson. Marion Williamson. And oh, she she came out and basically her. said that we shouldn't mock people that have faith that they can turn away the the, the storm with their faith or something like that. Something like that. Something ridiculous yeah. like that. So yeah, you were doing so good there, dear. <laughs> okay. okay, we won't mock her. No, 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 we will. Much. Much. Mm, there you go. <laughs> no. All right. Anything else you have for us? No, just just fuming over. You guys are so stupid. <laughs> Fair enough. So let's take a quick pause, and when we come back, we'll be with Dale on Earth, and we'll be talking about food myth and all that kind of stuff. So stay with us. Hi, I'm God, and I just wanted to make sure to tell you not to listen to Unapologetics on Stitcher and SoundCloud. That's Unapologetics with an X at the end. But, uh, yeah, definitely do not listen to the show. I mean, I swear to me, right, I will murder my son. Uh, well, I mean, I kind of already did that, but, uh, don't, just don't listen to the show, okay? Hey, Lucy. Can you not, can you not call me that, okay? We already went over what my name is, okay? It's Lucifer. All right, look, Lucy. Uh, you want to come with me? I'm going to go fuck with this guy, Joe. No, don't, don't do that, okay? Can you just leave him alone? Yeah, I'm gonna kill his family. No, don't, don't do that. I'm gonna give him sores all over his body. Don't, don't, don't do that. That's disgusting. And I'm gonna kill all of his livestock, you just, know? Stop, stop saying things. Just stop. Yeah, I'm gonna blame the whole thing on you. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go, bud. Remember, don't listen to Unapologetics on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Hey, definitely listen to that show. It's awesome. It's really cool. He's really a dick. I heard that. I'm Amy with a Y. And I'm Amy with an I. And we're the hosts of Secular Soup, where each week we offer up a bowl of real talk about atheism, feminism, politics, parenting, and whatever else we want to talk about because it's our podcast. Just listen to what these random dudes are saying about our show. This is what would happen if Daria and Jane grew up and started a podcast. So if you like extremely foul-mouthed ladies with opinions, this is the podcast for you. Grab a bowl and taste the magic. Slurp even this. And we have to realize that we are in a situation where people are flying planes into our buildings because they think God wrote their book and that they're going to get to paradise by dying in the right circumstances. And it seems to me a point of a really exquisite obviousness that the response to this situation cannot be, sorry guys, God wrote our book and you're going to help. guest is going to be talking food with us. So we got Dell on Earth with us, and she's a high snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Dell, thank you so much for joining us at Loveton Valley. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I will endorse the, um, the uh, snazzy dresser part. Uh, oh, yeah. Dancing is uh, <laughs> unclear. <laughs> Take the credit. Take the credit where you can, and go with it, girl. It's a, yeah. It's actually part. It's actually part of the canon here. You cannot be come on the show unless you're a good snappy dresser and snazzy dancer. <laughs> well, geez, what the hell are the rest of us doing here? That's because yeah. we. Can, that's because we can't do it. That's why our guests need to be able to. That's why we're. That's why we're on podcasting exactly. and not on YouTube. That's why we have a Facebook radio. That's right. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I'm gorgeous. Oh Jesus. You are. All right. My dear, maybe you'd be so kind to give us a quick bio for our audience as to who you are and what your show's all about. 
Yeah, so uh, I'm Dell on Earth, and I just started decided to start a podcast uh, because well, I I was dreaming about it for a few years because um, it seems to me like uh, the skeptical community in general is really on board with uh, technology in so many aspects of our lives, but when it comes to agricultural technology, they get a little more nervous, and when it comes to food animal agriculture technology they're just totally back with the general population and i think there's a lot of really really interesting and cool and exciting technology out there and a lot of myths that need busting out there too mm-hmm. and i wanted to be able to provide that perspective i myself am a dairy farmer yeah i know i know you guys I, have your own dairy yeah farmers, so. i i milk i am um, uh, actually work on a dairy farm as well <laughs> there we go something in common yeah, yeah. i i I have to say, I'm not like a regular listener of the show, but I've listened to a few episodes here and there, and I definitely caught the dairy farmer part. And <laughs> you, you're not you're not a regular listener of the show. <sighs> it's not, okay. No, not there. every month. I well, know. it was nice having you on board. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh come on, Kevin. Uh, wait, wait! Don't do that to a dairy farmer. That's no, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so you, your show focuses a lot. I'm assuming you you have probably a field day going out there because there are so many myths about uh, food and what we eat and what we, you know, how we should eat and, and, and things like. That. Because we do have a great relationship with food, right, as a species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, tell me something. Which which are your biggest pet peeves about what people believe about food? Um. Well, I mean, just generally, there's this sort of thought that, like, any sort of progress in animal agriculture is scary, which mm-hmm. is just just totally wild to me. It, it just it's so the opposite of how our community feels about technology and progress in all these other areas. And so it's just it's just bizarre to me that somehow we've all still bought the myth that like the farms of the 50s were better for animals. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. I mean, even when you look at the package of, uh, you know, even a package of bacon, something like that, you have this low farm, you know, in the green pastures and the rolling hills, you know. So it's true that, you know, we, we, we like to, I don't know, lie to ourselves. Yeah, well, and we... And we're just like so fooled, you know, we're so good at like dropping the emotional attachment and seeing through the bullshit marketing mm-hmm. um, with a lot of things. But when it comes to animal agriculture, it just seems like skeptics are just like pulled in just like everybody else, which is, you know, the first time I ever learned that skepticism was a thing was only like two years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was from the podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Oh, and the yeah. very first episode I downloaded and listened to, they were talking about, um, they were going on a big rant about how anti-GMO is ridiculous and they were very pro-GMO. And I was like, oh my God, these are my people. I love it so much. (laughs) So so how did you... That's what really brought me into skepticism. But then when it comes to animals, it's like, just go back to the same old myths. Mm -hmm. So how did you you develop this interest in in food and and what encouraged you to to do some more research and become, you know, more of an expert on it? Well, so I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, I grew up with like extended family that farms like grandparents and aunts and uncles, but they all lived uh, like four or five, six hour drives away. So I'd only get to visit um, like on holidays and stuff. Uh, And my mom got me involved in some youth programs with cattle and I just really fell in love with them. And then a bunch of people told me that girls couldn't farm and that people that didn't grow up on farms would never be able to farm. And I was like, screw all of you. I'm going to prove you all wrong 
Um, so I did, I got my own farm when I was 25. That was five years ago is when I quit my day job to start milking my own cows. And I just, I kind of grew up with a complex that like farm kids knew everything and Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything. And so I just absolutely busted my butt trying to learn every possible thing I could. Because uh, I was so paranoid that everybody else like had some magical knowledge mm. that I didn't have. Um, so I have a degree. I have a four-year degree in animal science. And then I, I also have a four-year degree in philosophy just because I really like learning and talking and mm. thinking oh. about stuff. I, I, I'm but, impressed um, here. I'm but really basically impressed. my farm blew up in my face. So, I mean, I'm still milking cows, but only barely. And I had to go back to work full-time as well. So I'm doing both and so i'm working in um agricultural animal research for a full-time oh, job too nice, so nice. that's fabulous I, I, good on you yeah i, I <laughs> there's so many questions i want to ask you first uh, first of all because um i was always told you know from from people in the financial sector uh that acquiring a farm for somebody who is not like i said the child of a farm or somebody who doesn't have umpteen degrees in agriculture is nearly impossible banks tend to have a tendency not to want to loan money to somebody who's buying a farm was that your experience in the u.s um well it depends a little bit so particularly in dairy it is a lot harder in canada like it's it's a lot closer to impossible because yes. of the uh, quota system yeah. that you guys have mm-hmm. um in the u.s it's not as bad but it's still pretty pretty difficult like people do it do they do it and are still successful and have a farm five years later mm-hmm. no and i am doing exactly that so <laughs> wow uh, do, do you, do you yeah. find there's, there's so well there's, uh, we can go through so many farm myths <laughs> and food myths here i we could oh my god we could talk to you for the next two hours i'm sure yep. yeah uh I, I i've got so many questions uh, you're obviously familiar with some of the uh the, the canine practices as well do you, do you know what, what would be the big differences you would know between our american farmers and the canadian farmers you figure um well in dairy <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> i'm recovering from a little cold um In dairy specifically, so Canada has a quota system that means that there's only so much milk that can be produced in Canada and farmers have to buy shares Mm -hmm. of that production. So that that like doubles the amount of debt like into the millions of dollars, even just for a small dairy farm to start in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, But what that does is it restricts supply and that keeps the prices of milk fairly reasonable for uh, farmers to be able to have some kind of income in Canada. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the U.S., production is totally a free for all. You can make as much as you want. And what happens when you make a ton of something? The price goes down. Mm -hmm. So we have very little income in Canada or uh, very little income from our milk compared to Canadian farmers, but we don't have to take on the debt of a quota system. But what that also means is that our milk price is just like wildly fluctuating all the time, which makes it really difficult to survive what's going on. So So how many, how many cows did you start out with and, and how many do you have now that gives you that balance of being able to, to make a profit if you are making a profit and to, to handle this, you know, in a way that um that that fits your your knowledge and 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 where you want to go um yeah so i was milking 60 cows uh at sort of my full size Mm -hmm. um i'm not i have never made one cent of profit in five years wow 
Um, so 2014 was a record good year for milk prices. And I got in at the tail end of that. So I never actually saw the good milk price. And then it crashed because the European Union used to also have a production quota like mm-hmm. Canada, and they eliminated it in 2014. Mm-hmm. So the world supply of milk went up drastically and crashed the price. Wow. Um, and it has stayed crashed since then. So, so if you if you if you had some say in, in your American government, and you could actually switch the uh, American system to something more like like the Canadians do, would you actually think it's a better system? Or would you prefer to keep it the way it is? Well, it would be better than our system. Mm. I don't know if it's the perfect system, because in the scheme of things for the world is limiting the amount of food that we're allowed to produce so that food stays expensive. Really, a great idea from a world's perspective. No, fair enough. Fair enough. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's just, it's always competing interests, like, for farmers to be able to make money, but for people to be able to afford food. Like, those are things that you yeah. need to balance. But until 2017, Canada did a really good job of just making only the amount of milk that they needed to use yes. and not really bothering anybody else. Like, they created, they made milk, Canadians drank the milk, and that was kind of the end of story. They were just sort of self-sufficient. Canadians are usually very protective of their milk industry as well. I mean, uh, I know for for a while that uh, they've just opened up the market to American milk products. Uh, I should say milk, not necessarily milk products. And I know a lot of Canadians are saying, no, 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 I'm not buying American milk. I'm keeping it with Canadian milk. So maybe maybe we should, uh, just to compare, how much is the price of a gallon of milk in the States worth right now? Oh, gosh. Well, it's it's highly regional. I mean, around here, you can get a gallon of milk for like a buck fifty, yeah. but I hear on the coast, it's like four dollars. Okay, four dollars yeah. on the coast. Wow. I know. I, I that's, don't what know. We're, well, that's what we're paying right now, four dollars yeah, for a gallon. I know right? in, in Bellingham, Washington, where I do uh, a lot of shopping, a quart of milk can go anywhere from a dollar twenty-seven to a dollar forty-seven. It, but it's, it's very low. I don't know. What, I never buy a gallon, but I buy by the quart. Yeah. That's why, that's why a lot of Canadians have a tendency to just jump across the border yeah. and buy it. Why would you Costco. do that? Our milk's so much nicer. Yeah. Well, th- that's, that's another good question. That's another good question. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about, uh, you know, the regulations as to the quality of milk in the States? Uh, I know, for example, you, you guys are allowed to inject cows with R- RGBH. Uh, do you think that's mm-hmm. a good thing? Which does absolutely nothing to milk quality. Really? Even Canada's government says it does nothing to milk quality, and they banned it on inv- uh, animal welfare grounds, which was also BS. But it was mostly just a protectionist move. So the RGBH, to, to make sure the audience understands, is essentially a growth hormone for the cow to produce more milk. Right? Essentially yep. correct here? Yeah. And it has yep. no, it has no uh, impact on the, on the quality of the milk, is what you're saying? Nope, none. Interesting. Um, so the reason, so if you look at Canada's official documents back in, oh, whatever year they decided that they were not going to approve it, uh, I think it was the late 90s, mid 90s, maybe. Yeah. So uh, even the Canadian government documents said that it, it doesn't do anything to the milk and they just banned it because they thought it incre- there was a possibility that it increased the rates of mastitis in cows. That's right. Yeah. Which is uh, utter infection. Yeah. So if you don't make a profit or, or milk, I don't want to be get you know too personal but if milk uh-huh. if dairy farmers are not making a profit how are they getting by year after year without having you know that cushion or that that amount of money that they can put away or put back into the into the business how do you how do milk how do, how do dairy farmers survive this I mean, well, we're going bankrupt at a rate of 10% of the United States as farms every few months right oh, now Jesus. gosh I didn't wow. know that. 
Yeah, it's it's not good. No, but so no. the number of cows is staying about the same though because those cows are really cheap. So people who are just getting into the business can can buy them or what it is mostly is it's big dairies continuing to expand. So yeah. so the milk price right now is right about break even if you were like a really big dairy. You could about break even right now. And also the banks have so much invested in those really big dairies that they will keep loaning them money because they're like too big to fail yeah um so they'll keep loaning them money with the uh with the hope that the milk price is going to turn around at some point here which it should i mean that's what we thought four years ago um i mean this is fairly unprecedented for it to be this low for this long so so everybody's that can hold on is trying to hold on hoping they can make it until the turnaround yeah so, so what, what do you think needs to happen uh, on a political level, or I should say maybe on a regulatory level, for American farmers to get back to being able to actually make a bit of money and actually survive? Instead, like 10% uh, of the, these farms per month, that's, that's, a, that's awful. That's an awful, awful number. It's not going to happen. I mean, there's no fixing it. It's snowballed to the point that there's no fixing it. So so this happened in the 70s to the poultry industry in the United States, and it happened in the early 90s to the pork industry in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess we all knew it was coming in dairy. We just thought maybe we had another 10 or 20 years, um, and it, it's here now. So, so there isn't any stopping it at this point. So are we, are we envisioning that maybe the U.S. is going to have to import a lot of their food? Oh, no, no. So we will. So just like um, just like with poultry and with pork. So it's all like um, one giant multinational Mm -hmm. company and they will own all of the pigs and all of the pig barns and they will just write a contract to an employee to manage the the farm. Hmm. So instead of like the family owned farm, it will be a family farm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh So um, so that's. There isn't going to be, I mean, in order to stop it at this point, you would have to put in some sort of like actual law that was like, you can't own more than one site or you can't own more than mm-hmm. a thousand cows. And, and nobody's going to do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's very unlikely to happen, too. It just just by by sheer lobbying. Uh, right. So it's just it's it's just not gonna i mean it's just not gonna it's not fixable so, so, so the, the little family farm thing is uh, we can already say it's almost a thing of the past already well so dairy well beef is still holding out kind okay. of because beef has sort of segmented itself into the people who raise calves up to about six months old and then the people who raise them from six months old on mm-hmm. so there's still a pretty heavy like family farm sort of aspect to the beef industry and then the dairy industry was was pretty family owned still um whereas you know pork poultry uh eggs that's uh pretty much all the contractor Mm -hmm. model at this point wow i I was i was listening to an interview with amy klobuchar the other night and she was talking about um keeping in 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 pretty close touch with the with the farm industry farm the small farmers and the farmers in in minnesota and and what touched me was she said that when she goes to talk to some of these farmers you know to find out what she can do and to learn a little bit more about what's going on she said a lot of times when they sit down to talk and they close the door 
before, she said they just start to cry about the conditions and, you know, how difficult Jeez. it is to maintain, you know, a living. And she seems like such a sincere person. You know, I wonder whether or not, you know, what she's saying now that she's on the campaign trail is what your experience may be and what uh, what she's trying to do for the Minnesota farmers. Are you involved in any any part of that? Well, I mean, I I guess I haven't really heard any talk from her about agriculture hardly at all. Um, I know Kristen Gillibrand had um, made sort of a token effort to help dairy farmers specifically uh, before she announced her run for president, Like, mm-hmm. but it was recently. It was in like the last year. Um, so I kind of had my eye on her. But yeah, I mean, I just get the sense that Amy Klobuchar, you know, does generally keep a good handle on the concerns of farmers. So that's just, you know, I just have generally good feelings about her more than I have like specific examples of things that she's done or not done. There's been a lot of talk lately uh, in in the news about uh, farmers essentially revolting against Trump, uh, especially due to his uh, tariffs war. Uh, Do you feel that that's actually justified? Do you think that's overblown or actually farmers really, really uh, feeling the pinch? Um, well, I'm I'm pretty hooked into the dairy farmer community specifically, so it's a little harder to, to generalize to everything. So the only data that I've been able to find, um, because farmers were historically uh, Democratic voters, and they were mostly because they, they want to be hooked in with good government support programs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what really started to turn farmers away from Democrats was environmental policies. Um because the issue with environmental policies is, well, it's it's kind of a lose-lose situation because what happens is Democrats want to put in good environmental protections and then Republicans want to make sure that there's no money to spend on, on, on the project yeah. of the environmental protection, if yeah. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens is if, if you get Democrats in charge, they pass laws. So like in Minnesota, our Democratic governor passed a law saying that you couldn't plant any crops within 50 feet of any waterway. Mm. So what happens is, um, I'm sure if Democrats had been in charge of everything, they would have offered us some assistance or some incentive to implement that thing that which, which was going to be extremely expensive for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but because Republicans were in charge of the House and Senate, they made sure that the law could get passed, but they wouldn't put any money towards it. So what that means is you have a new environmental law that farmers have to follow and we have no money by which to follow it. Yeah. Um, so the, the environmental stuff is the main thing that turns farmers off from Democrats. Wow. Um, so that's the main thing that farmers are afraid of when they're afraid of uh, voting blue. But uh, it just... there's a lot of other things that Democrats do that are very helpful to farmers. So it's really not so cut and dried which direction we're going to go. So anyway, I did some research and there's only one actual poll that's available about whether or not farmers supported Trump. And this was taken in October before the election. Mm -hmm. And what it found was that 55% of farmers supported Trump. Mm And that was before the election, before he put in all of these ridiculous trade policies. Mm -hmm. And it's most certainly dropped since then. But the other thing about that poll is it was a really, really, really terribly done poll. Mm -hmm. It only included grain farmers. Oh, my gosh. Really? 
it excluded almost any farmer in any blue state. It excluded pretty much any farmer under the age of 40. It ex- and the way that they did that, I'm, I'm generalizing, the way that they did that is they said any farmer that owns less than 200 acres isn't really a farmer. What? So I'm generalizing really? from that rule that any farm under 200 acres, that's going to be most of your farms in blue states. That's going to be any livestock farm. That's going to be any fruit or vegetable farm. That's yes. going to be any young yeah. farmer. And you it, know, so they structured the poll to absolutely fit the Republican base. Yeah, exactly. You know, yes. they they found out where the Republican farmers were and their age and all the demographics, and said, "Okay, we'll structure the poll yeah. to give weight to exactly. them and the heck with everybody else." So and, and it, it, was PR, found it was PR. It's not a poll. Support. Yeah. So that was really shocking to me because I thought, oh, I bet it's like 60-40. And it was only 55% support in the most biased sample they could find. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm really, really pissed off by this narrative that farmers support Trump because it appears to have never really been true that there's any kind of overwhelming support for Trump among farmers. And the problem is people are conflating rural with farmer. Mm -hmm. Farmers are like less than 5% of the rural population. Hmm. Wow. So like when you say rural people, 95 percent of who you're talking about are have nothing to do with farming. Well, Republicans seem to fuel themselves on myths and lies. So that oh, kind of goes to, along yeah. with, you know, with everything we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, so right. let, let's switch gears here because we're turning this into a yeah, whole know, bunch right? of politics. <laughs> no, but fine. This is, I think this is fantastic. It is. It is. It is. But, you know, her show is not necessarily geared towards politics as well. And well, Dell, you're show, just right? going to have to come back and so, talk about food. So, <laughs> Sorry. So t- tell me about how, how much time do you bang your head against the wall when you have to start talking about GMOs? Okay, so interestingly, <laughs> the is really good about GMOs. So, like, because I'm mostly targeting people that are already skeptics, GMOs isn't that big of an issue, which is nice because plant agriculture isn't really my area of expertise. So, I mean, I, I love learning about it and talking about it, but I have to do a lot more. It's not exactly low-hanging fruit. Like, I have to do a lot of research to be able to speak authoritatively about it. But, yeah, the skeptic community is pretty good about understanding that GMOs are not a boogeyman. Uh so the aim or the sort of the direction that I want to take with GMOs is I want to be able to put out some episodes that are specifically like, let's learn about the GMO papaya in Hawaii and how it saved Hawaii's papaya industry. Isn't this a cool technology story? Mm-hmm. Uh, if that makes sense. And just like sort of drum up some excitement about all the cool technology that mm-hmm. we have. Whereas on the animal agriculture side, I'm more interested in, in kind of myth busting, but mm-hmm. I don't have to do so much work to do myth busting when it comes to GMOs. Uh, uh, in the skeptical yeah, area. Yeah. It's, well, uh, do you have any idea by any chance how much of your audience is actually... I'm assuming most of your audience is like like us, as skeptics and atheists and all that, but I'm, I'm sure your show also appeals to people that are outside the movement. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just kind of who I've been targeting, and obviously, I mean, I only have like four episodes up, so it's not like I can make a broad statement <laughs> about my gigantic audience or anything. Because um, I'm really in a position where like I, I have so many ideas of what I want to talk about, but I really want to put the work in to make sure I don't say anything incorrect and make sure I get like a full picture of everything. So I, I do a lot of research for the episodes, and I've just been, since I took this full time job six months ago, I've just been just unbelievably busy. (laughs) We understand that all too well. (laughs) So with with GMOs not being a massive um, hurdle for the skeptic community, community, what have you found has been the Mm. thing that 
a lot of skeptics believe that is false and that you're just like really guys come on uh yeah so i mean anything to do with animal agriculture pretty much i mean they seem to have figured out that like organic is bullshit whether we're talking about like (laughs) organic agriculture for animals or for plants um and it's been really interesting to hear that skeptics know that organic agriculture is bullshit, but they don't seem to understand that organic animal agriculture literally is just giving homeopathy to your cows. Hmm. Hmm. Really? I, like, would you? Would you like? I'm I'm curious about that. Would you like to elaborate on that? I've never heard that comp- <laughs> that comparison. Homeopathy. Yeah. So. To the cows. Um, Organic agriculture for animals bans any substance that's considered unnatural. So, like, the whole point of organic agriculture is the appeal to nature fallacy. Like, that is what the rules are built on. Um, So, like, you cannot give antibiotics to an animal if you have an organic farm. What? Yeah, so you can only do, like, homeopathic herbal remedies. Those poor cows! So, but here's how they try to get around the animal welfare implication. They do say that if the cow is like going to die, you can give her antibiotics and then immediately sell her to someone else. Oh but gosh. I think we can imagine what sort of incentive system that sets up for actually treating your cows. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Cause nobody wants to buy a sick cow nope. and yeah. like, you're obviously going to wait until the last minute because you're incentivized to like, you're not thinking about the animals well-being you're thinking about will she live if i don't give her this antibiotic because i'm only going to give her the antibiotic if i have no other options Mm -hmm. whatsoever and of course it's what you're going to do before that time is you're going to give money to every single product that comes across your radar that's an herbal oregano supplement and you're going to put it up your cow's udder (laughs) in hopes that it cures her udder infection which is ridiculous Whoa, really? I had no idea about that. <laughs> I'm running yeah. here. I had no idea. To, to my great shame, for years, for years, and I, this is like, of course, probably over a decade ago, but for years I was one of these anti-GMO proponents. Uh, to yeah. my great shame, I actually admit that. Uh, of course, I did learn more into the subject, but for, for the longest time, I couldn't understand the idea of, you know, why are you inserting fish gene into this apple? You know, it didn't yeah. make much sense to me because, you know, I, on the surface, like you said, the natural fallacy, right? The, the, well, why are you putting fish genes in an apple? Yeah, it doesn't well, really Nature's stupid sometimes. <laughs> Look at our no, eyesight. It's when you when you when you learn a bit more about genetics. It's just like it's just mm-hmm. genes. It doesn't matter if it's a fish gene or or, or an apple gene or whatever. It's just genes. Uh, then you you start to understand. Uh, so so maybe uh, as a um, for the lay, uh, layman listener, like one of our listeners that's hearing you for the first time and all that. What what bit of advice would you give him about when it comes to learning about scientific facts about food? Um. I think the biggest thing is just to know that, generally speaking, people are choosing to use technologies because it is helpful. Like, you know, there's this weird myth that, like, we're all being forced to buy our GMO this or that. Um, uh, so, like, generally speaking, it goes for any agricultural technology that, like, if farmers are buying it, they're, they're probably buying it because it's it's helpful to them in some way. and. Usually that means it's helping us get more food out of less product, like mm-hmm. less land, less cows. And, and any of that is going to come with some environmental good. If you can get more food from less land, that's usually a good thing. Now, obviously, we have to do it carefully and make sure there's not any side effects. But for the most part, we need to be thinking about getting more food out of less input Mm -hmm. if we want to be able to feed everyone and if we want to be able to do it in an environmentally friendly manner. And of course, 
technologies all come with trade-offs. So if you decide that you don't want to use antibiotics, you have to realize that that means you're going to have, say, 15% higher death loss in your herd of cattle, right? So that yeah. means uh, more environmental impact for the same amount of food. So if, we get, if we're going to take any technology and rule it out, like it's going to come with downsides. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so everything, there's always two sides of the coin, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, you, you, you find you get into a lot of the, um, what I call the boogeyman uh, symptom. You know, pe people are, are talking online, but they talk about big pharma. They talk about big ag agriculture. And, you know, I mean, this this week I was having a debate with somebody that was insisting that uh, food companies like Kraft and Pepsi are actually using aborted fetuses a sample as mm. food additives. What? Yeah, yeah as food additives oh for flavoring <laughs> oh to change God. your DNA. I, I said, okay, there's so many things wrong with that statement, man. I don't even know where to start. You know, and oh you, <laughs> I know this. This is the the state of the, the of people today, and I think I think of course it's the whole Dunning Kruger effect, right? They think they know more because you know Karen did a five minutes of research on some websites called Natural News. So. Yeah, well, and it's amazing how much that affects you know even into the skeptic community mm -hmm. with certain things as this sort of Dunning Kruger effect of you know I've I've read a lot of think pieces about it, therefore I know how it works. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also it's hard to separate. Um, different things. I was just having a conversation on Facebook the other day about someone saying that, that grass-fed cattle are bad because it requires um, clear-cutting of the forest, like what's happening in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And like, that's definitely true. If you want to graze cows in Brazil, well, in the Amazon region of Brazil, you would have to cut down the forest and, and plant grass to graze your cows. But in most of the United States, we already have a prairie biome. So like you're not like gra it's already a grassland landscape. Yeah. So grazing cattle on it is not like that's actually in harmony with the natural biome to graze uh, natural prairies. Like that's that's how yeah. it should work, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's good. it's hard to explain that like. In New Zealand, they do it this way, but in the United States, they do it this way. And what's harmful in this place is actually fine here. And unfortunately, that just means there's no easy answers to anything. Like, okay, so the answer is that organic is bullshit, but what does that mean you should buy? Well, I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> it just means you need to really learn about your sources and encourage a small farmer in your community. <laughs> well, and if you, can, if you can talk to individual farmers, you can try to sort of figure out if you're what you're buying aligns more with what the science says but most of the folks that are going to be selling on a small scale in a farmer's market are actually going to be very deep in the organic woo so yeah yeah i, I, I get that <laughs> but you know sometimes like you have to understand also i think a lot of people i uh, sometimes i'm willing to cut on some slack because for example i was talking to my chicken guy yes i have a chicken guy <laughs> <laughs> and he farms his chicken right right here on the massacre flats there and and he says to me he used to work for safeway at the same time Right, and he stayed at Safeway because Safeway is a branch of grocery stores that's closing down here. I uh, he stayed there because he was getting a pension. But he says to me, he says you would not. I, I he says, Kev, you wouldn't imagine what goes on with the chicken at Safeway. He says it's a, it's actually uh, grown in Argentina. It's actually shipped <gasps> to China, and processed there, and then it's sold here. Ew. And you know, and, that and sounds it, fairly surprising. Well, I guess it does. I have to look into it. If but yeah. this is my mm. chicken guy, right? And you're thinking, oh, well, yeah. you know, for the layperson said, I, I wouldn't want to call him a liar, and why would I do so, right? And he, of course, yeah. he's, he's got a small poultry farm, 
when he grows cool. I'm just, I'm just surprised that that would make any economic sense when, like, the United States has um, massive amounts of chicken ready to export. It seems weird that they I, would do all that. I thought so, too. But I'm putting myself in the in the boots of you and I are skeptics and we're, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're thinking like that. But the average person out there doesn't really put that much thought into it, right? Right. So they right. probably say, oh, my God, what a horrible thing. And, and, and right. is he is he doing that just to sell his chicken, or is he actually right, or is he misinformed himself? No. Well, either way, he pro- he for sh- you know it certainly seems like he believes it and is sincere. He, I mean, and exactly. it's possible that that happens. Exactly, I, exactly. Sure. So I guess you know we have we have to keep listening to shows like yours to debunk all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's why I'm kind of trying to keep stuff to like describing the the food systems in the U.S. a little bit, just because otherwise the scope just gets uh, uh, totally crazy. But uh, you know, it's it's still really interesting. And when it comes to a lot of stuff, you know, there's a lot of sim- similarities between the Canadian uh, food system and the U.S. food system. I mean, they're not all that different a lot of the time. So yeah, exactly. So, Del, in, in conclusion there, for the average person out there listening, if they want to learn more about their food, where would you tell them to start? Where, where can they get informed, besides listening to your show, of course? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, when it comes to the plant uh, plant food side, there's a lot of uh, really good res- resources out there. I'm trying to think of them. Like BioFortified is a resource that's been around for a long time trying to uh, do some good pro-science work on the GMO front. Um, there's a fair number of things out there. It doesn't seem like anybody is doing any sort of pro science work in the animal agriculture space at all honestly if, if anybody knows of anybody absolutely i would love to check it out because hey maybe that's a shortcut and i don't have to do all this original research myself but mm. it's it seems like uh no matter where you turn um everybody's got some kind of woo they're buying into on the animal agriculture front uh which is just it's just baffling to me uh because it's such a strange blind spot to have, but mm-hmm. it seems to be there. So uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. That sounds kind of depressing. No, no, I totally get it. Well, Del, I'm you know, the one that knows what's going on. It just seems like people aren't talking about it. Well, Del, the, the, I mean, the topic that we went off on a tangent was so fascinating. It was almost as though we planned the program around everything <laughs> that we discussed today. <laughs> Will you please come back and talk more about evidence-based oh, yeah, food, sure, science-based sure. food. This has just been a, a, an enlightening, we just uh, the fascinating, yeah, it's just been a fascinating conversation, and you're such a good advocate, you know, of what mm-hmm. you're doing. We'd love to have you come back and spend some time with us, you know, going over some of the research that you've done. Yeah, and you and Christina can go and milk cut some cows together. Yeah, That'd be there great. you go. <laughs> yeah. Can, Christina, can I ask you a little bit about the farm you oh, work at? Oh, 100%. Is it, how many cows? Um... Well, we have a couple hundred being milked, but then there's uh-huh. um, there's like the Three. new cow, like there's <laughs> the calves that get rotated like back into the system. So then we have like the ones that are just like babies, teenagers. So probably in total, maybe like, oh gosh, definitely around like 500. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good size farm for Canada, isn't it? So in the U.S., that'd be like a smallish average mm-hmm. size, but in it, Canada, that's pretty big, isn't it's it? A, I'd say medium size. Um, okay. And what kind of cow? Oh, um, the, the numbers I've seen are like that the the average farm size in Canada is about ninety milk cows. Oh, really? 
Um, well, I don't, I don't really interact with a lot of other milkers, so I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you don't have a milker guild somewhere? No. Well, this is the only farm are, I've milked they at. All, they all so. walk into the bar, they all have a glass of milk at the mm. end of the day. It's, it's definitely <laughs> on the bigger, on the bigger side than, because like driving down like anywhere in the country, like you do see a lot of smaller farms. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, because the farm I work at, they've been there for like, oh gosh, like 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've they've been able to build up and they make a lot of profits. So like they've been able to like build a nice big house oh, are they <laughs> for Jersey the grandparents. No, no, they're the black and white ones. The Hol- Holstein. Holstein, yeah. Holstein. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. the name Dale, of that one that looks like a panda? Yeah, Dale, we are in an agricultural dairy farm, oh, a dairy farm, farm area. area. Yeah. Here, it, yeah. It, it, I've heard you guys at, talk about it on the podcast. Seems probably. like you're pretty rural. <laughs> yes. Well, we're just we're just on the edge of rurality here. You know, as soon as you get out of Abbotsford, Abbotsford is like half half city, half rural. There's 150,000 yeah. here, so mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's just on the edge of that. We are the city in the country, as it were. Yes, yeah, it much. smells like cow poo all the time. <laughs> it does. You know, when you've reached us, when you start smelling all the farms. Yeah, and better cow than pig. Actually, oh God, yes. Or and we're we're right on the bo- we're right on the um, U.S. border, the Canadian U.S. border, and uh, the state of Washington. And going yeah. immediately south into Linden, um, toward Bellingham, they have this the same. Um, a lot of Dutch. Uh, they have the same type of of uh, yeah. agriculture there, and a lot of dairy farms as well. So we're 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 in we're definitely in the zone mm-hmm. here. All right. Well, Del, thank you so much for joining us today. I really really yeah. appreciate that. But uh, this is your time. Be be shameless. Plug yourself. Plug your show. If people want to find out more about your wacky adventures, where can they find you? Uh, yeah. So um, on Facebook, I'm Dell on Earth. Uh, I'm sure you'll have like a link or you'll spell my name somewhere, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, and my podcast is called Evidence-Based Eating. I toyed with really creative names for a while. And then I was like, how would I just say what I want to talk about? Yes. <laughs> so so I just settled on Evidence-Based Eating, has some alliteration going on. And um, I can I can be reached on Gmail. It's Ev based eating, so just E V based eating. Uh, that's kind of how I shorten it up. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, More Cowbell M O A R C O W B L L E. So yeah, uh, those are some places to reach me. I I pretty open. So I started a whole new Facebook account when I started sort of doing all this activist work under a pseudonym uh, for many reasons. Kind of want to keep my atheism and my queerness separate from my career life. And I kind of want to keep my farm activism uh, separate from bleeding over into my real farm a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, just because there are some animal rights groups that are uh, terroristic that have been active in yeah. my area. So I'm just trying to keep a little bit of a wall between things. Um, So my Facebook page is really open for anybody that's a fan of the show or interested in talking to me about the show, because that's kind of the purpose of it is to be to be me in the skeptical community. So fantastic. Well, before I let you go, I got to have you say, hey, this is Dell on Earth from Evidence Based Eating. And I took a left at the valley. Hey, this is Dell on Earth from Evidence Based Eating. And I took a left at the valley. And that was Dell on Earth. And uh, evidence-based eating. She's great. She's That's great. fantastic. Yeah. I, I was I'm very, very impressed with her knowledge. My God. And not, not just her knowledge of her industry as a whole, but 
the fact that she actually knows about the kid inside I of things. I know. That was great. I was impressed. I think, I think she bought it with Christina as well. Yeah, I'm impressed. That <laughs> it, was, it was fun. Yeah, at age 14, she, I know. she knew what she's, she wanted to do. She's got her shit together. And cared for those cows. You know, took care of them and, you know, built her knowledge so that she could, uh, you know, eventually have a farm of her own. That's not an easy task. No, she's got her manure yeah, she's, <laughs> in line. That's the thing with farming is... No matter what kind of a day you're having, how sick you are, whether it's snow, rain, sleet, yep, hail, yep. ice, heat, you have to go out and do your job. Yep. You have to go out and you have to feed the animals and you have to clean after them and everything like that. Like farming does not stop just because weather or an illness or something like that. Like it's, yep. you still have to go out and take care of the animals yep. or somebody does. Yeah, exactly. It's, so it's not always the easiest thing no, to do. That's a tough tough job tough job it certainly is and we'll, we'll have her back and I'm sure yeah. we'll, we'll have some more food really because we just scratched the surface on something we like really that. did we yeah. really did so it's going to be interesting well thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for listening and thank you to Dell on Earth for being our guest uh, you can follow us at leftofthevalue.com you can follow us on Facebook on Twitter at LEDV Podcast you can give us an email send us an email at the left at valley at outlook.com uh, give us a five star review where you find us it helps us and helps others find the show and you can also help uh, the the show by becoming a patron at uh, patreon slash letv okay coming up next week we'll be talking about the vanishing of the bees oh finally. that's yeah. going to be a very interesting show see oh, what's yeah. going on with bees kind of goes well with the agricultural yeah, theme show of today a long time. uh the week after that we'll be talking about the free thought prophet with james mcgaffick and we'll also be talking about everyone's agnostic with marie in October, we'll have a skeptic sketch conspiracy with Mike Bowler. And we'll also have Ask an Atheist with Sam Solvey and the Godless Revolution. And we'll also have it with Dan Ellis. And we'll also have our Halloween special. And in November, we'll be talking to our friend David Fitzgerald. He's oh, coming back on the show. Great. And we'll also have Jeff Cohen of FAIR talk about media and uh, uh, being unbiased in media. And we'll also have the Brazen Atheist coming as well. Wow, Ooh, we're almost heading towards the end of the year already. I, it, I, I, where did the summer, did we actually have no, summer? No, no, it just... Or did we dream it? As my father in his wisdom used to say, life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it spins. <laughs> it's very apt, in a way. Yeah. Well, one, Disgusting, but apt. One thing you could say is, we have an utterly fantastic lineup. Oh. <laughs> Five points for that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. Until next time. Only true on a regional scale. Science is universal. Are you to say that Horace isn't real? Well, and you know, it's I, I still feel a little confused about my political identification because I I was raised a Republican and then I went to a libertarian phase on my way to being a liberal, so I, I still don't quite know what to label myself. And you know, this election was the first time I'd ever voted for a Democrat was against Trump. Just, so just, just label yourself common sense intelligent and don't sweat the rest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well that's what I'm working on, you know. I'm just yeah. like you know, I always say it's not like it's not like my um, my goals or my values changed at all. It's just that I realized that the Republicans were just idiots and not actually accomplishing any of the things that they said that they were standing for. And I was like, oh, well, it turns out the people that actually care about the stuff I care about are not them. Yeah. <laughs>
to keep it on the hush Don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them, we teaching them to respect them Respect them, fuck that The system is broke down, working backwards in the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them The parties of God's hands are bloodstained Millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful That many atheists are told to be quiet You're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer An infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith And unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.